You're listening to Cross Section, the podcast of the Summit View Church of Christ. Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord lift his upon you. So again today I have the honor of introducing my buddy Rudy Cantu, the gentleman that brought me to Christ. Um Matthew 5 and 14 says this, You are a light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor can anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on, on, but on the lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. You, not the guy next to you, not the preacher, you, if you're a Christian, are a light in this world. Christ is in you, and as you grow, he shines forth, and people of the world can see that light. And they'll ask you, what is it that you have that, that I don't? You'll get... A question such as that. Rudy is someone, an evangelist, who has spent his life answering that question for people, trying to help them find the way. We, we all need to know. We all need to be ready for that question when our loved ones, our friends, our, our family, people we meet want to know about the hope that is in us. And uh, we invited Rudy here because he has experience sharing the word. Please welcome Rudy. Good morning, church. Uh, <clears throat> when I see Jack at work, it makes me, it mo I'm moved, I want to cry. I'm very proud of him. There are several people that uh, I have taught who are elders in congregations across the three nations, uh, Canada, United States, several states. And um, it's wonderful what the gospel does transforms people, and that's what it's supposed to do. Um, I want to pick up where I left off last time. We're talking about evangelism. That's what this meeting is about, gospelizing. That's why we are here this week. And <clears throat> the implications, once, there have many implications of the gospel. My sermon is entitled, Who Gets Whom?, I was inspired by a denominational ad that said he gets us, and my point last week was that our job is to get him. We're the ones who are supposed to grow up in all aspects in which we grasp, discern, understand the invisible and eternal realities which the world can't see. So um, I want to read from, to begin with, 
1 Corinthians 6, 1. We're going to be still in 1 Corinthians as uh, we'll read to you from verses 1 through 8. First of all, Paul, in this writing to the Church of Christ in Corinth, he realizes that the church, uh, he loves them. They're, it's an unruly church because they've just recently, within the last year, two years, three years, they've just recently been converted to Christ from paganism, from Judaism. Uh, they, they don't have this. They don't have pews. They don't have meeting houses. They meet from house to house. They meet in the temple. Uh, the Jews let them do that for a while. Uh, they have thousands of people uh, that have been converted and they can't even take the Lord's Supper properly. It's not like we have done it. Paul has to uh, rebuke them at times for the disorderly fashion in which they tend to go. They're still learning. They're just learning to be disciplined and to have uh, decency and order in their assemblies. Uh, Some show up for the Lord's Supper, drunk. Uh, you can see that it's disorderly for a lot of reasons. They're just learning. So there are times when he spends his uh, uh, space in the letter correcting them, trying to help them. He says um, in chapter 6, verse 1, does any of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before saints? That's uh, a rhetorical question. He's really saying, you shouldn't do that. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? That's a rhetorical. He's saying, you should know that the saints will judge the world. <clears throat> if the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? It's a rhetorical question. He's saying, if that's the case, you are competent to judge the smallest law courts. Do you not know that we will judge angels? That's a rhetorical. He's saying you should know that we will judge angels. How much more matters of this life? There he has put this life subordinate to the real life, the eternal invisible one. <clears throat> so if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren, but brother goes to law with brother, and that before unbelievers? Actually then, it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to your brethren. The passage asks, why not rather be wronged? Here Paul is rebuking the church for litigating brethren before courts of unbelievers. 
He's not saying don't go to law. He's saying, brethren, you're, you don't understand what your relationship to God is. You don't understand what your status is in all of eternity. Why would you do this before unbelievers fight in the courts of law among yourselves? Well, why not be wronged? Why not be civilly defrauded? Paul is rhetorically indicating that Christians are better off refraining from an appeal to the compelling force of worldly government. He says that by appealing to non-Christians for restitution, a Christian litigant actually likewise defrauds himself and even his defendant, the brother. Litigating in civil courts against a brother is an unrighteous act. In verses 9 through 10, we see things. This deed is inspired by unrighteousness within the one who is doing the suing, within the litigating brother. In fact, to bring a civil suit against a sibling in Christ, a brother or a sister, <clears throat> instead of bringing the matter to the church, appears to be so errant that Paul is inspired to place such unrighteousness adjacent to what is called the roll call of the damned. He's going to make a list there. He's going to, we're going to see it. Uh, we can also look at Galatians 5, verses 16 through 21, something similar, the deeds of the flesh. It's a list of deviancies which defines unrighteousness. Paul reminds the church, now this is in, uh, in, in the text where we're reading, Paul reminds the church of Christ there that the unrighteous, the unrighteous, that is a condition. He doesn't say the ones who are doing this or the ones who are doing that. He's saying the unrighteous, the people whose uh, distance to God is such that it's normal for them to do things like this. Included in the list of those who are unrighteous, fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, the effeminate, and that's the effeminate males. Girls, it's okay to be girls. <clears throat> Homosexuals, thieves, the covetous, drunkards, not alcoholics, drunkards, revilers, and swindlers. That's quite a list. To some degree, one or more of those unrighteous conditions are part of the lives of each of us. Isn't that why each of us, earlier when I asked the question, are we sinners, everyone said, yes, I'm a sinner. Each of us readily agrees with the assumption that we are all sinners. While some may not rank the suing of a brother to be so wrong as those evils that we just listed, and the Corinthian Church of Christ has bigger problems than people suing each other, Paul's point is that it's wrong. While the point is a minor one, 
and I'm not here to argue one way or the other on it except to agree with Paul that it's wrong. In Paul's rebuking of the unruly church, it's a minor case. The church uh, has bigger issues. It's built around a more important deficiency, a more important point. The larger point being that we, like the Corinthian Christians, need to get Christ or understand Christ or embed Christ in our lives. In 1 Corinthians 6, that's where we are, verses 9 through 10, he says this about that list. Such were some of you. Sexual impropriety, that's the top of the list there in his list. Reviling, what's that? Well, we've done that. Kurt, hurting, snappy retorts. Uh, it, uh, a scurrilous, abusive attack on someone prompted by anger or hatred. If it's vituperative, that means it's violent. Idolatry, petty thievery, taking unfair advantage of a deal, wanting that which belongs to another. All of these are common to American churchgoers and the unconverted American. How about idolatry? Well, greed uh, in the... um, New American Standard in King James, covetousness in the King James. In Colossians 3, 5, Paul says, this is idolatry. So he's saying, I'm saying, and he's saying, such were some of you. If we agree that we are all sinners, how is it that we do not own up to these violations in our own individual Pasts. He says, such were some of us, but we know that. In 6.11, he says, such were some of you, but you were washed. You were set apart, sanctified, set apart, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. So if we don't understand what our condition was before, it's going to be difficult for us to understand how much has been done for us. We know that. That's why we are here in this fellowship in this city. That's why we're gathered here, I I would hope. We're not here to atone for anything. We're not Jews still under the law and seeking, seeking I always forget this word. That's why I've got it written down here. Propitiation. I know all of you have heard that word. Preachers have been talked about it for a long time. They've even tried to define it. It's a legal term. If you and I enter into a contract, say you've hired me for 12 months and uh, you've paid me an advance and... I, you've paid the whole $1,200, the $100 a month. 
but I have not fulfilled two months of my responsibilities. So we come together in a meeting and you say, Rudy, you haven't done all 12 months. You've only done two. I mean, you've missed two. I say, well, I've got to, let's make that right. Let's settle this account on the books. When we settle a contract, when we make the contract valid, when we make it whole, we've completed with it, we've complied, all the conditions have been met, that's that word. <laughs> Propitiation. We've propitiated it. So we're not here under law. We're, we needed to be a, uh, to meet that. We, we need to satisfy the debt, satisfy the requirement or contractual condition. We don't have to do that. The word of God says in 1 John 2, verse 2, you don't have to look it up. It says that Christ was and is the propitiation for our sins. He did it. He met the contract. The Jews needed that to be done. They couldn't do anything about their sinfulness. They, had, they were looking for atonement. They had whole holidays, days of atonement. They were seeking a way as a people to have, in general terms, forgiveness. That one meant, you put that together, that's atonement. They wanted to be close to God again. We don't. We're already there because we were washed. Christ is the propitiation for our sins. We're here as beneficiaries of God's plan of salvation. The liturgy, which we are engaged in this morning, including the preaching of the word, is an important component of God's plan. In verse 11, Paul tells us, we just read it, Paul reminds us that God's plan is one in which we may be transformed, extinguishing the worldly toxins in us by the washing of water and the spirit. In that list of uh, the roll call of the dam, what he is, what is being condemned here is the person who actually, in his behavior, defines fornication, defines homosexuality, defines reviling, defines idolatry, defines thievery, because that's who he is. It's not what he does that counts. What counts is that's who he is, and that's why he does what he does. <clears throat> but you, brothers and sisters, were washed, not only baptized for the remission of sins, but by virtue of obedience, you were set apart sanctified. You were justified all in the name of the Lord Jesus and in the spirit of our God. So that's a lot that's happened. He's done a lot for us. What else do we need to understand? That the Lord gets us already. We're not here because he, we're trying to get him to get us and understand, oh, he gets us. So that's great. Now I can I don't know what the, what the commercial is really asking of people, but he already gets us. And what we see and what we have just seen and read is that we need somehow to get him. When he asks, why not be defrauded? Why not let that go? He's talking about a condition in the person. Now look, civil litigation, it, being in court, 
defending oneself in court about this or that. That's part of our set of laws in this country. What Paul is saying is we don't do that as Christians when we're dealing with other Christians. The church is comprised of people who are destined for far greater things than just settling a lawsuit. <clears throat> Hence, what is required is that we get him, embed him, imitate him, become him. After all, if we are genuinely converted to Christ, we are not our own anymore. We said that last week. Furthermore, he dwells within us and we dwell in him. There's transformation there. In God's plan of salvation, God's grace permits the renewing of one's mind, which brings about transformation. Everything we need to grow up in all aspects is already within us. In verses 6 through 19, well, we've read part of that. Uh, I'll read from 12 to, uh, not, well, I'll just read 19. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? whom you have from God, and that you are not your own. For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. It would come natural if you know that. That's what we are about. In verse 14, um, In 1 Corinthians 2, you can turn there if you want, Paul says this, but a natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. When he says a natural person, he means just the average, normal, run-of-the-mill human being. Organically, corporeally, his status is natural. That's what happens when people reproduce. They produce human beings. That's a natural person. If they're not Christians, they don't accept the things of the, of the Spirit of God. For they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. In verse 15, the one who is spiritual discerns all things. Yet he himself is discerned by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Now I know that most people have read that passage. We have to be people who look at passages like that and ask the question, what does that mean? Well, what it means initially is that our minds because we are Christians and because we have been gifted upon obedience to the gospel with God himself within us, that we have the potential to grasp things that people in the world cannot. They cannot. And so in their poor attempts to worship God, it never goes beyond the little that they understand. Let's ask, what does hinder me from permitting a brother to defraud me? If I'm defrauded by one of you, what 
is keeping me. Why, why should I not try to get what was taken from me by fraud? It's not unusual. There's a congregation in Arizona where a member of the church uh, absconded with nearly a million dollars over a period of several years from their home congregation. So, many people in that congregation left because they were hurt because that person was a friend of theirs. They feel like that person defrauded them personally. And if it were up to them, they would want, it. I don't know, it's a matter of principle. And if we don't litigate in court to get that person to give me back what he owes me, that's bad for them. We can rationalize any way we want. But what Paul is saying, it's wrong, is he not? He's saying it's wrong. So why do we want to make it right? Now that's why this issue of, that he brings up here, that's why it's important to us in the issue of evangelism. We continue to want those things because it's us. They've hurt my feelings. They've hurt my pride. Somehow or another, if I let them get away with it, I'll look like a patsy, an easy mark. The Bible teaches that my consciousness then, if I, that's the way I am, needs to be elevated. It needs to be elevated like unto the level of Jesus is, to the point where I can walk with him not on water, but the extra mile. Where I want what he wants. Where I have the latitude to forgive the offense to me because it is no offense. That's what he would do. I can't think of very many <coughs> greater offenses than going through a kangaroo court, being convicted of non-crimes, being beaten, tortured, and condemned to a death that is so horrible that people in the first century would prefer to be impaled than to be crucified. modern-day replications of it with trained athletes in top condition where they're not nailed to the cross but merely tied to the cross. The physics of it, when you learn it, you'll realize that the pressures on those arms are great. They have never lasted longer than five minutes before they were begging to be brought down. The Nazis, in their concentration camps, replicated crucifixion in a variety of ways, different positions, whatnot, and they were torturous, but they were not killers. They weren't, they, they weren't deadly. The crucifixion of a man is torture, and it finally kills one. 
I can't think of very many things that uh, I would not want rectified if that were being done to me. Unfairly, unjustly. My transformation is not complete. I'm not there yet. Where I can say, I forgive you. But Paul says, like, he's like me. He says, Paul, in Philippians 3.12, he says, I press on. I'm not perfect, but I press on. Why? So that I may lay hold of that for which I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. What he did for you on the cross was give you the potential, the ability to change. You're never going to be able to do everything right. But because of what he did, you can mature inside to where you want to do the right thing. Instinctively, impulsively, compulsively, because that's who you are. I am not there. Maybe you're not there. But if you are there, then what Paul is telling them about lawsuits makes sense. He said, no, it's not worth it to bring reproach upon the body of Christ, which is what you are, the church of Christ, to bring reproach on it, to see, to let them who hate you, see, they'll say, look at them, bickering over a few thousand dollars to bring reproach on the Lord's church by doing that. He says that's wrong. And that question he asks, why not rather be defrauded, is the one that strikes deep into our hearts and says, well, why not? Because I am selfish. Because my pride counts. Because I've been offended. I've been affronted. Now, you get rid of that and you're on the way to obeying Jesus' commandment. I'm way off course here, and I'm gonna still I'm going to finish on time. I hope you give me a couple extra minutes. There are hundreds of imperative propositions in the New Testament. An imperative proposition is, I'll say something like, turn out the lights, close the book, ring the bell. Those are Imperative statements. There are lots of those. But Jesus' command, and he repeats it at least three times, just in the Gospel of John, is agape. You love. That's a command. He gave you a spirit, the Holy Spirit, and what he wants that Holy Spirit to do is to blossom. So in Galatians 5, 22 and following, after he's gone through a list that's kind of like the one we read, the, the roll call of the damned, look at all these characteristics of people who are not going to, they can't possibly qualify for salvation. They're not holy. He says, why not go there? <clears throat> this is so key, you'll have to drag me off with a, with a hook. <clears throat> Galatians 5 
22. He says, look at all these things. Envying, drunkenness, carousing. Those who practice those things, they've got a condition. They, can't, they cannot inherit the kingdom of God. It cannot be. You cannot have unholy unrighteousness exist where there is God because he is holy and righteous. It's like matter and antimatter. Can't work. However, he says, the fruit, that's singular, right? It's not fruits. It's singular. It's a perfect passive participle turned a verb into a noun. It's the fruition, the blossoming of the Spirit is this. First one, love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Apropos, reason against this, such things, in reference to these things, there is no law written in commandments. There's no way I can point a gun to your head and cause you to love me. Jesus, God is not threatening you. He's saying this is a state of being that is essential in your life. It says the fruition, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Well, what if I don't love enough? What if I'm not loving? What if I'm not patient? I've asked this question many times. What if you're not? What do we do about that? Well, you know, you, you realize you're going to hell. Well, that's not enough. You know, I can't. I, that's not a, that's a threat. I, it doesn't move me to love you anymore than I do. What if I don't love? What if I'm not patient? What do you do? You are the only creatures on earth that have the ability to extinguish that self. Jesus says, you've got to leave that behind. And you can't do it on your own. If you could make yourself perfect, why would you need Jesus? What we're seeing here is what you need to know about the gospel. That the gospel is not just a transition from one set of laws written in commandments to another set of law written in commandments. When one becomes a Christian, how many times does the Bible have to say it? If any man is in Christ, that's 2 Corinthians 5, 17 and following. If any man is in Christ, what does it say? He is a new creature. What exactly does that mean? Old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. This has disappeared and in its place is that. Romans 12. Don't be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Well, there is a plan in the scriptures for that. When we preach the gospel, we're not preaching another covenant like the first one. 
We're preaching a different agreement. We're preaching one that really works. What we may have made the mistake in the past of treating it like another set of laws and written in commandments, but the fact of the matter is that we are into something different. Paul says in chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, verse 12, I'm going to finish on time. He says, all things are lawful. How many times have you read that? Well, what does that mean? I tell my congregation, you don't know what that means. Why not? You're reading the same words I'm reading. Why don't you know what that means? Why haven't you analyzed it to see what he's telling you? This is your life. And I'll tell you what, it's not just your life. The family you are raising, I don't care who you are, what your past is, how tough you are, how smart you are that you don't need to listen. Your family and the unity of that family, the cohesion of it, and its spiritual growth depend on you leading it, men. You have to be the spiritual leaders in your household. You can't keep letting your wives do that for you, excusing your lack of understanding. All things are lawful. You know why that is? Because we're not under a law written in commandments. We're under the law of the Spirit. You know where it is. Law of the Spirit of life in Christ. It's the answer to Paul's question in Romans 6 and 7. Who's going to deliver me? Well, thank, thank God we have a way. The law of the Spirit of life in Christ. It's simple, really. There is a plan of salvation that says, now that your past transgressions, there's that word again, we've settled that account, you emerge from the waters of baptism and you're still you. What do we do about that? What, if we, do, what do we do about your not loving? What do we do about your not being patient? Well, be ye transformed. Can you do it? No. Okay, will he do it? No. Between the both of you, you can't, and that's why the plan's in the scriptures. <clears throat> I would study that. How does that work? You're participating it to a large degree right now. You're listening to this old guy from some other place that you're never going to see again, and he's telling you that it's really important the scriptures say that, your future depends on that. Your family's future depends on that. Your children, your unborn children, all, all the people that you care about depend on your being better than you are. What's the plan? I'm going to give you three verses, and I'm out of here. Let's go back to Galatians. I'll give you two verses. Make it easy on you. <clears throat> Galatians 5, 6. Circumcision was 
a legal binding agreement for the Jews. It's representative of a law, obeying the law, doing what God tells you to do, abstaining from what he says not to do, and hoping that you have placated him. But now, under in a new agreement, the new covenant, in Galatians 5, 6, Paul says, for in, in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. It's irrelevant. What does matter? Faith working through agape, love. Now let's look at Galatians 6.15, just across the page. Same beginning to the sentence. He says, circumcision doesn't mean anything. Non-circumcision doesn't mean anything. What did I say they were representative of? They were representative of laws written in commandments. He says, they don't mean anything. What doesn't matter, Paul? What matters is new creation. A new you that when you die, the you that you see in the mirror, that's not going to exist. God says he is spirit, not a spirit. He is spirit. And he said you were created in his image. The real you is going to continue to exist. And it needs to be of new creation. You have a way to make that happen. You have this blessedness. You have this congregation, this family of yours. They've gone to the expense and the trouble to bring this guy. All I've done is preach the gospel. There's nothing special about me. All the guys who preach at my congregation, they come to the, to the pulpit and they say, I'm nothing special, I'm just Joe Blow. Well, that's who you're looking at. I'm just another guy. But we've mastered one thing, and that's how to preach the power of God unto salvation, the only power. So this morning, I want to tell you that if you're not a Christian, you don't have a shot. You don't have a chance. If you are a Christian, I'll tell you this. You often fail. And sometimes this failure, if you just tell your family about it, they'll help you. And together, this can be a praying congregation, a confessing congregation, a forgiving congregation, which is what we see in the scriptures is a good congregation. When we sing a song of encouragement, and I think we have it down there, I, we're singing that to encourage you to make a decision. Do you come forward? Well, if you want to, that'd be great. It would inspire everybody else. But if you don't want to come forward, why don't you wait till everybody goes? And you've got so many leaders here, so many spiritual leaders. You're, this is a blessed congregation. You've got people who can do a lot of stuff. You just haven't given them a chance to do it. There, I have met so many people members of your congregation at luncheons, at singing, and at meetings at, at Jack's house and other places. We don't have that in my congregation. You're blessed with a lot of potential leaders here. 
Give them a chance to do something. And this morning, if you don't come forward, that's fine, but I want you to make a decision, if you need to, to talk to somebody about your walk with God. That's all I've got to tell you this morning. It's you. It's your decision. Sing our song of encouragement.